0: Welcome to the Word Theatre Short Story Podcast, your weekly access to the best short stories read by great actors, recorded live in the US and the UK. My name is Cedaring Fox. I'm Word Theater's founder and artistic director. 2023 marks Word Theater's 20th anniversary of presenting live events in Los Angeles, New York, and London. And in addition to our regular programming, we have celebrations planned in all three cities this year. Be sure to get onto our mailing list so you know what's happening. And remember, if you are a Word Theater patron or enthusiast member, you will be able to watch beautifully filmed versions of our live events from the comfort of your home, assuming you can't join us in person. We thought we'd get romantic this week as we have Valentine's Day coming up in the US on February 14th. And this love story called The Proxy Marriage by the wonderful author Miley Malloy seems fitting for the occasion. Miley Malloy is the author of the novels Liars and Saints, A Family Daughter, and Do Not Become Alarmed. Also, the story collection's Half in Love, and Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It, which was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, and one of the best books of the year by the Los Angeles Times and Amazon.com. Miley has also written a trilogy of novels for young readers, beginning with The Apothecary, which was a New York Times bestseller and won the E.B. White Award. Her short stories have appeared in The New Yorker, which is where we found this one, The Paris Review, Granta, and Best American Short Stories, and she's written for The Society on Netflix and for the new television series, Accused, on Fox and Hulu. Miley was at Word Theater when Johnny Simmons read her story, The Proxy Marriage, and everyone was delighted by his performance. This fine actor was born in Montgomery, Alabama, and raised in Texas, where he landed his first film role when he was just 20 years old. Since then, Johnny has had major roles in many Hollywood films, including Hotel for Dogs, jennifer's body 21 jump street the perks of being a wallflower and the to-do list and television shows such as klondike and girl boss we hope you enjoy the proxy marriage
1: william was tall and thin and shy and awkward in school. His best social tool was that he played the piano, and so he was recruited for school musicals, which placed him at the rehearsals and cast parties with kids he would otherwise scarcely have known. He thought he would either be a pianist or a physicist, although he didn't know anyone in Montana who did those things professionally. His piano teacher was a banker's widow who gave lessons in her lace curtain house, And his physics teacher was primarily the wrestling coach. (laughs) But William could imagine another kind of life. Through the musicals, he became friends with Bridie Taylor. Bridie had golden curls like a Botticelli angel and a face that didn't go with him, a long, straight nose, dark eyes. She had a clear, bright, mezzo-soprano voice, and she, she wanted to be an actress. Her mother had left when Bridie was nine, and she grew up with her father, a lawyer who adored her. Bridie was confident, even a little vain, and she was good at school, except for math, which didn't interest her. So William helped her through trigonometry, teaching her the concepts at lunch before tests so she could and forget them immediately afterward. William had no girlfriends in high school, and his mother once sat him down at the table in her spotless kitchen and asked if he was gay. She said it would be fine with her. She loved him unconditionally, and they would figure out a way to tell his father, but William wasn't gay. He was just absurdly, painfully in love with Bridie Taylor. He leaned on the piano and sang while he played, and he had no way of telling her. He was just too shy to pursue other girls, even when the payoff seemed either likely or worth the agony. But he didn't tell his mother that. It was too humiliating. He just stammered an unconvincing denial. Other boys asked Bridie out, and William suffered through it. She viewed them with amusement, but she accepted most invitations. Encouraged in their junior year, William decided to ask her to winter formula. He was getting ready, vibrating with the anticipation when Brady told him that a tennis-playing senior named Monty had invited her. (laughs) What did did you say? He asked. Oh, I guess. Yes, I guess. William excused himself from homeroom and went into the disinfectant-smelling tiled bathroom. He waited until he was sure that no one else was there, then he threw up in a green graffiti-marked stall. <laughs> he hadn't thrown up since he was six when he had the flu and it was harrowing. His body seemed to have been taken over by some alien force. But Monty made a mistake. He sat Bridie down in his parents' living rooms two days after the dance and told her, told her that he'd wanted three things out of high school to be captain of the tennis team, to get into Berkeley, and to have a serious girlfriend. The first two had already happened, and Bridie would be perfect for the third. She reported the conversation to William, laughing. (laughs) He was so earnest, she said about his goals. William made a mental note, never to be earnest with Bridie. (laughs) In September of their senior year, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were attacked and the towers fell. William's parents were out of town and he overslept, waking when Bridie called him. Wake up, she said. Terrorists are attacking America. Where, he asked groggily with sleep. Everywhere, she said. At schools, teachers brought out television sets on AV carts and they all watched the news, silent and dazed. In November, troops were sent to Afghanistan. In December, Brady's father came to her and William with a request. He'd been asked to arrange a proxy wedding for a Marine corporal in Kandahar and his fiancee who was in North Carolina and pregnant. They wanted to give the child his father's name and a death benefit if something went wrong. Most states didn't allow proxy marriages and Montana was the only one that allowed double proxy weddings in which neither party had to be present. They practiced. The practice seemed to have been allowed before statehood and had been used for soldiers during the Second World War. But no one knew exactly why it had arisen, possibly because it was difficult to travel long distances to a courthouse to marry an out-of-state sweetheart. Mr. Taylor asked Brady and William to be the proxies. He'd asked the secretary and his paralegal first, but they had no interest. William's mother thought that this was a good idea and a way to do something for the country when everyone felt helpless. Uh, a small offering. William thought that she'd believed, she hadn't believed his claims of being heterosexual before and was happy with the idea of him marrying a girl. He wondered if Bridie's father thought he was gay too or just dickless and unthreatening. But... William took the thing seriously. He couldn't help it. Even a fake marriage to Bridie Taylor filled his heart with unaccountable joy, and he went home after school, put on his dark gray recital suit and a tie. He and Bridie were getting $50 each, and he thought he should dress for the job. At the country courthouse, county courthouse, he found Bridie with her sneakered feet up on a heavy wooden table. Her hair was... Pulled back in a stubby curly ponytail, and she wore jeans and a T-shirt she'd put on before school. She glanced from William's face to his suit. Hmm, "You look nice," she said, and there were cheers. <laughs> there was annoyance in her voice. "Thank you," he said, mortified. Gratty looked like an ordinary girl in a sullen mood, not like the love of anyone's life. And he felt a flicker of hope. Not that she would ever come to love him, but that someday he might not be enthralled to her. He might be free. She was chewing gum. (coughs) I think we should have champagne, she said to her father, who was in shirt sleeves. It's a wedding. You aren't old enough her father said. He was a big man, bearish, but kind, and he had scared William at first, though he didn't anymore. I'm old enough to get married, Bridey said. (laughs) Not really, her father said. The marrying couple had sent photographs and Bridey dropped her feet to the floor and propped up the photos against two water bottles on the table. The bride had light brown hair and freckles on a wide open pale face, and the groom was in uniform. They aren't gonna last, she said. I can tell. <laughs> Bridie, her father said, looking over his glasses. This man could be killed any day. Show some respect, spit that gum out. Braddy rolled her eyes, folded the gum into a scrap of paper and tossed it in the wastebasket by the door. Her father's secretary, Pam, came in to serve as the witness. She had a neat, short gray hair and she, she was wearing a dress, which William was grateful for. Mr. Taylor began reading from a paper. We are gathered here today to join this couple, couple who have been who have applied and received a marriage license from the state in holy matrimony. Do you, Bridie, take this man by proxy to be your lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state? There was a silence. Then Bridie said, "Oh, sorry, I do." <laughs> do you promise? to love him and keep him in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer as long as you both shall live. I do, Brady said. William's heart thudded twice in quick succession. Her sleeves were pushed up to her elbows and he found himself looking at her narrow waist and the fine downy hair on her arms. He was shot through with desire. So much for being free. Her father said, do you, William? William. Take this woman by proxy to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state. I do. Do you promise to love her and keep her in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer as long as you both shall live? William's voice him. I do. Then I now pronounce you Shelley Jean Jackson and Anthony James, James Tybo, man and wife. Mr. Taylor put the paper down. That's it, Bridie said. That's it, her father asked, and you have to sign. William signed his name, hands shaking only a little, and Brighty signed hers. Pam signed as the witness, then Bridie's father produced a folded stack of cash and peeled off one $50 bill for Brighty, and one for William. We're rich, Brighty said. Let's go get food. They sat over bowls of chili in a green booth downtown, William, self-conscious, in his suit. Why the the bad mood? He asked. I told my mother I'm applying for conservatories, Brighty said, to study musical theater. She said it was a cliched and superficial thing to do. And that anyway, I'm not pretty enough. Almost, but not quite. She just wanted to be honest to save me the disappointment later. That was sweet of her. <laughs> I, I thought you two weren't in touch. We aren't much, Brady said. I used to see her once a year, but it confuses her now that I'm not a little girl anymore, so I don't go visit. I thought she'd lost all that scary maternal power, you know? Are you really wearing that dress? That kind of thing. But I guess she's, she hasn't. Do you know why she left? William shook his head. Bridie never talked about it, and he'd only heard rumors. She met a psychic channeler who put her in touch with her past lives. She was always into her past lives. That's why she named me Bridie. Some woman got hypnotized a long time ago and said she used to be an Irish girl named Bridie Murphy who died, and she saw all these details, and there was a book, but the reporters checked it out, and the dead girl never even existed. Except my mother still believes it's possible. She moved to Oakland to be near her psychic, One of her other past lives, she was a pioneer woman, digging potatoes with her hands. One was a French courtesan before the revolution. My mom thinks that's why her French is good. (laughs) I used to want her to be interested in this life, you know? She has indoor plumbing in this life. And a daughter. But she likes her other lives better. Righty rubbed her nose. I just wish I didn't care. Of course you care, William said. She's her mom. (laughs) Hardly. She still is. Elbow on the table, Bridie rested her temple and her palm fingering her curls. You think that couple will stay married? Once today? I hope so. Do you believe in true love and all that? William cleared his throat. throat. I think so, yeah. Bridey buried her spoon in the chili and let it fall with a clink to the bull's white rim. I don't know, though. What are the chances she'll meet that one person? Better than the chances of contacting a dead pioneer woman. <laughs> she smiled, but her eyes grew shiny with tears. I guess. She gave you a good name for your job. Proxy Bridey. Bridie laughed and wiped her eyes, so I should give her more credit? No, William said, you give her too much. Bridie's uh, father asked them to do other proxy weddings, another proxy wedding that winter. When they met at the courthouse, Bridie brought her acceptance letter from a conservatory in Chicago and showed it to William. She was in a spectacular mood, hugging her family when she arrived flirting with William during the ceremony. But William knew better than to think she was actually flirting with him. It was just her happiness spilling over. Other soldiers heard about the proxy law and William and Bridie did three more weddings on a single day in the spring and three in the summer after they graduated. It got easier for William as the ceremony became familiar. His heart didn't trip all over itself so much when he said, I do. Then he went to Oberlin to study piano and Brighty went to Chicago. College was busy, and they were only sporadically in touch. But at Christmas they met in the courthouse for another wedding. Bridie's father wasn't there yet, and William and Brighty sat at the heavy wooden table. She was uh she was thinner. And it shocked him. She had never been fat. She had always been a little rounded. And now the roundness was gone. It's exhausting, she said. The girls there are really dancers. I'm killing myself to catch up. And they're, I don't know, ruthless. They come from places with serious theater programs where you have to be better than 300 girls to get the part. Here, I only had to be better than three other girls. So they're becoming these thin, flexible blades of ambition. And I'm, I don't know, I'm this goofy girl who wants to sing and dance. Hmm? Huh? That might be a good thing, William said at college. He'd played piano for the ballet classes for extra money, and he knew what she was talking about- the hardness of the dancers. You might seem fresh and better. <laughs> I don't think so, Brady said. Do you have friends? I do, but they you know how here the bad kids drink beer from kegs and get into fistfights and go sledding drunk? Liam smiled. It was one of the things that he'd been happiest to get away from. There, Brady said, they do ecstasy and strip to that littered Cohen song everybody knows. <laughs> or to any song, really. <laughs> and then fall into bed with whoever's There. It's like they have these fabulous bodies, and they don't want to waste them. There's so many people you just have to meet without your clothes. That's the line they like. Do, do you? William's voice caught with the imagining of a strip. God, no, she said, and she laughed her old laugh, her angel curls bouncing around her face he loved. I'm such a prude. I say sober, and I keep my clothes on, but I'm always... I'm always terrified. They went through the familiar ceremony, but Bridie wasn't familiar to him. There was something vulnerable and uncertain in her eyes now. And it pierced his heart. Two days later, she came to his parents' Christmas party in a in a tight red, red dress, she did a good impression of having her old confidence standing by the tree laughing, glass of champagne in her hair in her hand, her hair golden in the Christmas lights. William's father raised his eyebrows at him with approval and with what seemed to be a question. <laughs> William only shook his head. What could he say to Brighty that wouldn't sound too earnest and frighten her away and ruin everything? He thought of poor, rejected Monty, who had seen the thing that William's father saw now. Monty had tried to grab it, clumsily, with flat-footed talk of goals. And Bridie had left and slipped off of his grasp. In January, William back, went back to school and threw himself into practice, into work. He started writing music tentatively. He stopped playing for ballet classes, and he wrote a piano quintet. It was difficult, and it reminded him of his old love of physics, of working out complicated problems, and trying to keep multiple ideas in his head at the same time. The night he saw it performed by other students, he decided he would switch from performance to composition. The Iraq invasion brought more soldiers who wanted to marry. Bridie's father was depressed by the war, but he kept performing weddings. He said, it wasn't the soldier's fault that the war was wrong. But the following spring, when the Abu Ghraib photographs emerged, Mr. Taylor shut down his proxy business. We're done, he said, I'm done. William thought there must be a long, compound German word for the way that large events in the world could affect your personal life. The scale was reduced to the point of insignificance, but the everyday effect was amplified. No more proxy marriages meant very little contact with Bridie. Now that they were at different schools, she wasn't so concerned about what day exactly he was going to be home on break. He worked all the time and his back ached from hours at the piano, so he went to the gym to strengthen it, and his, his body changed. His chest deepened, and his arms grew stronger. He even got a girlfriend, finally, dark-haired oboist named Jillian, who explained to him what woodwinds could and couldn't do after he showed her a piece that he'd written that would have required bionic lungs. <laughs> Jillian knew when she finished school and started looking for a job in a symphony there might be no positions for an oboe or if she was lucky there might just be one and many people would want it she had not spent hundreds of hours hunched over a table making reeds for nothing she knew she knew how old all the principal oboists were whether they were married to someone whose work might take them to another city and whether they were happily married She was determined to get whatever spot came up, and she had ambition to spare for William. Neither his parents nor his old piano teacher had ever had exactly that. They wanted him to be happy, but Jillian wanted him to be prominent. (laughs) There might be an opening in Tampa, she said, lying in his dorm bed. Would you come to Tampa? Could work, could work as well there as anywhere. Looking at her bedside, he, her fine dark hair fanned out on his pillow. Mascara smeared touchingly under one eye. He realized that he wouldn't go to Tampa if a was dropped dead and Jillian got the job. He wondered if this was how other people plumb secrets of their own hearts with tests like, will you go to Tampa? <laughs> I'm going to graduate school. Jillian's brow furrowed. Where? He could see her running through the oboe list in her head. Life expectancies, <laughs> marital chances. I don't know yet. I'm tired of Ohio. I haven't gotten much further than that. It was true. It didn't matter where he went. He was grateful to Jillian for her cold ambition and her warm company and for the abundant sex. But... It wasn't fair to let her think that he'd go to Tampa, and it wasn't her fault that she wasn't Bridie Taylor. Proxy applicants began to write beseeching letters to Bridie's father, and finally he relented. At Christmas, William and Bridie did five weddings in a row. After they graduated, they had a docket of seven. Pam, the secretary, said that the first couple had written their own vows and asked if proxies could say them. She gave them a tight sheet of paper. It's okay with it's okay with me if it's okay with you," Braddy's father said. Braddy picked up her script and turned towards William. (laughs) "I will run through the rain for you," she read, stifling a laugh and taking refuge in the page. "I will worship your feet, even if you, even your crooked baby toe with no toenail. I promise to devote myself to your happiness, even when the things you do don't always make me happy." And I will remember that no proxy in the world could stand for you. Not truly, because you are irreplaceable to me. You are the man I was meant to spend my life with. And I hereby put my heart in your hands. She put down the script, oh, she said startled. That's really, I'm sorry I laughed. (laughs) William caught the secretary, who had known Brighty since she was a child, watching them across the room. He avoided her eye. In July, Bridie moved to New York to audition. William told himself that he could, he could go to New York too. But Bridie wasn't asking. And graduate schools were. And Indiana University offered the most money. You're tired of Ohio, and you're going to Indiana? <laughs> Jillian asked him on the phone, what the hell's the difference? (laughs) She still hadn't forgiven him for breaking up with her, which was flattering. He'd hoped that she would get a job without something too terrible happening to another oboist, no lymphoma, no shattering divorce, but he knew that Jillian would be happy either way. William liked Bloomington, with its lush, towering trees and fireflies at dusk, and its austere, gray university buildings. He settled into his work and got a tutoring job, helping brilliant Korean violinists with shaky English write their music theory papers. One morning, he picked up a newspaper in a cafe while waiting for a coffee, and he saw the name of a sergeant Ian Brady had married. He had been killed. By a roadside bomb. Yeah, William was sure it was the same name. After that, he avoided newspapers. In school, this was easy to do. Bridie called him sometimes from New York, more often than she had from school. She was working nights at a restaurant in the village, then going home to Brooklyn and waking up in the dark to put on full makeup and stand in line for early morning chorus callbacks in Manhattan. She wasn't getting parts, and she was demoralized. He didn't tell her about the sergeant. The last casting director told me that I wasn't ingenue, she said. She said, I have an ingenue's hair, but there are always wigs for that, and I don't have the right face. She said, I'm really a character actress, but I'm not old enough for the roles yet. I'm not old enough for my face. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? Wait 30 years to have a career? <laughs> something, something will come up, William said. They'll want someone with your look. I don't know. I'm not a real dancer. Thank God. I'm just so tired. You need sleep. Or you'll look old enough for the character parts really soon. <laughs> Bridie laughed. And then it turned into something like a song. <laughs> Maybe my mother was right. I'm just not pretty enough. Bridie, you've been there eight months. But they had the same conversation after two years. Then Three. Sometimes there were happy calls about jobs, a cat food ad that paid bills, a touring company that never made it to Indiana. But rejection was wearing her down. Sometimes he went weeks without thinking of Bridie, and sometimes she haunted him. Then came a year when there were no calls, no email, no word. The first news he had was a a call from his mother who had run into Bridie's grandmother at the grocery store. The proud old lady had said, I don't know what Bridie's doing trying to be an actress, but you know, she's just married a lovely young man. Well maybe not so young, but I'm told he's lovely. William felt if, if he had been punched in the stomach. He couldn't find the breath to talk normally to his mother, and she, sh- she seemed to understand. I'm sorry, William, she said. Thank you for telling me, he managed to say. He waited for Bridie to call, but she didn't. Finally, he texted her. What's new? She didn't respond. He was working on a commission but the notes swam together every time he looked at it. He sat at the keyboard in his apartment, but his head spun with thoughts of what he should have done differently. He'd known Bridie had boyfriends, but somehow he'd never thought that she would marry someone else. She married him, William, every time they were together. <laughs> he wondered if that made it easier to do for the real, you know, for, for real, if marrying some so many times without personal consequences had made her wander blindly into the wrong marriage. Because it was the wrong marriage. He was sure. How could it be anything else? Finally, he started working again. Without Brady to hope for, he felt that he was living in a timeless universe. It was a peculiarly fe- freeing state. He didn't wonder about whether the music he was writing was good or bad. Sometimes he seemed to only be channeling it. He thought about Bridie's mother's psychic calling up on past lives and wondered if the music was coming from somewhere else. Sometimes he knew that he was actively composing, thinking about what a bassoon could do, how long a note could be sustained, how long dissonance could be tolerated before it had to resolve into something sweet. But even then, he felt cut loose from his critical sense. He was, he was making something and it gave him pleasure and it didn't matter if it ever left his apartment or if he ever left his apartment as long as he never went out, there was no crashing self-consciousness, no awareness of the outside world. But time did pass and Christmas came. He told his parents that he couldn't afford to come home and, and stayed in Indiana. What he couldn't do was go through another marriage to Bridie who was already married or worse, stand by while her new husband took over as the proxy. In January, his mother reported that Bridie hadn't come home for Christmas either. And in February, she called to say that Bridie was getting divorced, was moving home. Listening to the silence on the line, William thought that maybe this was a dream or a fantasy on his part. Just wish fulfillment. I think you should call her, his mother said. And say what? What? She doesn't know you're in love with her. I'm not. Oh, William, I'm your mother. I think I know a little bit about you. (laughs) I can't call her. Sometimes I think you two are determined to be unhappy. She's not unhappy. It's not what I hear. Then stop listening was another silence. Come home this summer. His mother said, I'll buy you a ticket. William tried to recover the blissful anesthetized working state he had been in, but it was harder now. He was distracted. The spell had been broken. The small town smoke signals relayed to Indiana kept him informed about Bridie. She was She was working in her father's office, filing and waiting tables in the downtown restaurant. He wondered if Bridie got news about him too. Did the smoke signals work without a mother to receive them? In June, he went home and he got his answer. He had been in his parents' house only a day when the phone rang, Bridie's name was on the screen. He picked it up and something deep in his belly thrilled, against his will, to the sound of her voice My dad wants to know if you'll do another wedding she said Just one He said nothing William Who's who's been doing it since we've been gone he asked No one, he hasn't been doing them I heard you actually got married I did He could hear her typing trying to keep her tone light. Turns out I'm not so good at the real thing. Who was he? He owned the restaurant where I worked. Do you remember the jungle book when the python hypnotizes Mowgli and his eyes twirl and follow the snake anywhere and let himself be strangled? That was me. I was Mowgli. But I slipped the coils. Why? Oh, she said, well, he was sleeping with two of the other waitresses. Is that enough? Look, I can tell my dad you can't do it. I'll do it. When William parked his mother's car in the courthouse lot, there was a woman beside him in a red pickup truck, crying. The air was brisk and tall, old stone building imposing with the new prison built alongside it. Inside the courthouse, the room they usually used was locked, so William backtracked to the clerk's office. The girl in front of him in the line, who looked about seventeen, was picking up a restraining order. A bosomy clerk at the desk held a phone receiver to his shoulder and said, How do we do a dissolution of marriage if the husband is in Afghanistan? He wondered reflexively if the dissolving marriage was one of his embrieties other people's pain the courthouse was full of it a clerk led him into the lock room and William dropped his backpack on the heavy wooden table folding his long body into the chair it was early he tented his head his hands in front of his face as if he could shield him from seeing Bridie. if equal affection cannot be let the more loving one be me that was Alden William had set the poem to music for a pretentious tenor at school. But what did Auden know? Padding around in filthy carpet slippers, filling teacups with cigarette butts, Auden, by his nature, was always going to be the more loving one, so he tried to make the longing admirable and desirable. William knew from experience that it wasn't. <laughs> the role of the human brain was to rationalize suffering. Brady came into the room. She wore jeans and a button-down shirt, one corner tucked in. It had been two years since he'd seen her, and the hard angles of her face surprised him. She she looked tired and beaten down with dark circles under her eyes, but she had the same ringlets bouncing around her ears, (laughs) same sweetly discordant face. William's tinted hands couldn't protect him. His heart ached at the sight of her. She sat and hugged one knee, a sneakered foot on the chair. How's it composing? It's all right. He was suddenly sure that he shouldn't have come. Seeing her, hearing her voice was opening up wounds that he had sewn tightly shut with great effort and resolve. How's it being home? She smiled. It's a bit awful. There are certain women who are thrilled to see me waiting tables. They order to salad and say, well, you went off to be a big star and now you're back here. Hmm? Confirms all their beliefs about the futility of leaving. So, you know, making people happy. It's, it's important. Her father walked in and clapped William on the shoulder. Good to see you home, he said. The couple wants to video conference. I said, you wouldn't mind? Video? Brady said, touching her hair. You could have warned us. They just told me, Brady's father said. He pulled a laptop from the bag and gave it to Brady along with a post-it with two usernames scribbled on it. They want to Skype. Whatever that is. I'd have washed my hair if I would have known, Brighty said. Do they want to see you or just us? Just you two, her father said. I'll be right back. <clears throat> William pulled his chair beside Brighty's while she set up a Skype account for her father. Their faces appeared on the laptop screen. Brighty scooted her chair closer and William felt her. Her knee brushes. He looked down at the keyboard. He didn't want to see his own face and he didn't trust himself to look at Brighty's. She fluffed her curls. Are you okay with this? I should have asked. It's fine, he said, hating the harshness in his voice. But after today, you have to find someone else. Brady looked at him startled. Really? It's too hard for me. I can't do this anymore. Why not? Just call them. Let's get this over with. So Brady did. William waited, agitated, and awkward. He still felt like a gangly kid because that's how Brady had always known him. He shouldn't have told her that he was quitting until they finished. He didn't want to see the couple they were marrying and be reminded of how little the ceremony had to do with him and Bridie. But then the bride and groom were there, a young black couple in separate windows at the top of the screen. The bride had wide eyes and a smooth bob. Behind her was a living room in Virginia. The groom was in Iraq and wore digital desert camouflage. Their names were Natalie and Darren. Hi! Brady said, I'm Brady, and this is William. We're your proxies. The bride frowned. I asked for black proxies, but the lawyer said you're in Montana. I guess it's pretty pretty white there. <laughs> it is, Brady said, apologetic. I'm, I'm his daughter, the lawyer's daughter. We, we always do the weddings. Okay, Natalie said. Darren asked, what's your success rate? Well, everyone gets married," Brady said. <laughs> "Oh, you mean do they stay married?" "Yeah." Mm, "I don't know," Brady said. William remembered the dead sergeant's name on the paper and the question about the dissolution of marriage, and pushed those thoughts out of his brain. "I wish it was the proper thing," Darren said. "Like if I was home." "'It's legal,' Bridie said. "'You'll be married. "'See, baby,' Natalie said to her fiancé. "'It's all right.' just feels wrong,' he said. "'I'm sorry,' Bridie said. "'Thank you for your service.' "'Soldier nodded. "'William resisted the urge "'to look at Bridie in surprise. "'Thank you for your service. "'Where did she learn to say that?' "'Mr. Taylor came back to the room with Pam "'who wore a flowered dress, "'and they sat down.' Ready? he asked. William and Bridie nodded, and her father started the familiar ceremony. Do you, Bridie, take this man by proxy to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold by the laws of God and of this state? I do, Brady said on the screen, Natalie. Started to cry. William answered in turn, and he saw Darren's mouth. Darren mouthed the words silently along with him, looking fiercely intent. Bridie's father pronounced him man and wife and Natalie put her hands over her mouth and tried to control her tears. As he signed his name and the date, William hoped the couple would be happy together. He hoped Darren would make it home. Bridie's father and Pam came around the table to wave at the camera and offer congratulations and then left with the paperwork. William and Bridie were alone with the couple on the screen. You're married now, Bridie said. I wish I could say you may kiss the bride. Natalie was rescuing her eye makeup from her tears. What, you don't provide that service? No, William said firmly. (laughs) "How come on, Natalie said. To seal it, I'm a superstitious girl. You're lucky I don't ask you to jump over a broom. William turned in confusion towards Bridie. We could jump over, he began. But then... It just happened as if by a magnetic force, as if human lips couldn't be in such proximity and not meet. William's eyes closed. He was kissing Bridie Taylor. It was too much to take in. Her lips were soft, warm, and she smelled of something sweet and vaguely spicy—ginger, maybe—in her hair. Then the kiss was over, and Bridie looked up at him with a expression of puzzlement. She was blushing. You could see a pink tinge rise in her cheeks. Her eyes burned painfully. Her ears burned painfully, and. He knew they were turning red. There was a whoop and a sound of clapping, and William turned to see Natalie applauding them. Darren was grinning for the first time. Brighty gave a little bow to the camera. Her father walked in, and they both stood up instinctively like schoolchildren caught in some mischief. <laughs> Their bench made a screeching noise as it slid back across the wooden floor. They said goodbye to the couple, and there were thanks and good wishes, and Brighty started to put away the computer. Mr. Taylor frowned at William. Something wrong with your ears? <laughs> William clapped his hands over them. They just get hot sometimes. <laughs> Mr. Taylor looked suspicious, but he put his computer in his bag and left. Your, your ears are really red, Bridie said when they were alone. It happens. I remember... She said, you do? He said. She nodded and raised her hands to his ears, cool fingertips on the hot rims of cartilage. Please don't do this, Bridey. Don't toy with me. I'm not. You are. Did you feel it before, when we, when they asked us to kiss, feel what? Something shifted all of a sudden, she said, like it, like it came into focus. Not for me, his voice said hoarse. No, she looked disappointed. He shook his head. It was always there for me. His legs were trembling. She frowned doubtfully and he thought of his mother saying, she doesn't know you're in love with her. And his anger that Bridie could possibly be so dense. It's true, he said. Her eyes went through a whole sequence of emotions, surprise, then compassion and sadness, and then something that looked like joy. Her face flushed pink and she looked like the Bridie Taylor he had fallen in love with. How could you marry someone else? He asked. I told you, I was hypnotized by a snake. That's no excuse. I don't know then, I I just, I, I didn't know. But now you do? I do. Are you sure?" In answer, she drew him close to kiss the bride. William buried his hands in her curls at the base of her neck and felt her long-desired body press against him. Her soft mouth against his, the gingery smell, he thought he might weep with the relief of it, with the release of all those years of waiting, the intermittent periods of suppressed grief. Equal affection was this it? Hm. Huh. Didn't have to be exactly equal. He would take anything close. <laughs> Thank
0: you. We hope you've enjoyed hearing Johnny Simmons step into Miley Malloy's story, The Proxy Marriage. If you did, please be sure to visit our website, wordtheater.org, to learn how to become a member, and do tell your friends about us. We have no advertising budget, and we're counting on you to spread the word. We'd like to give a big shout out to the Los Angeles County Department of Arts and Culture, who helped support our podcast. Thank you, Jonathan Sachs, for composing our theme music. And thank you, Jason Lee our podcast editor. This is Cedaring Fox in New York. Until next week, signing off.